Hello and welcome to the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM or on one of our much appreciated radio syndicate partners or on the podcast at greenmajority.ca. My name is David Hostetter in studio with Stefan Hostetter and Saren Kaster on the dials. Wow, you've really been uh, been working on that intro, eh? Yeah, Thank I was going to say, uh, I, I really love it, Dave, but you might want to make sure I've double-checked the levels before you go just that low. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he is bringing it today. I beckon the listener into my cave. All right, so we are, what are we covering, Dave? We're covering the election, which just occurred, the Canadian federal election, and uh, also environmental justice. We're going to talk about environmental justice later on. And uh, California, the utilities in California, which Stefan is still incensed they were, Yes, if you remember from a few weeks ago, uh, the, the PG&E cut power to, uh, at some point, hundreds of thousands, if not a million people. And and I was this was an example of, of climate uh, catastrophe. And I will and it's back again. And also, I want to point out that there was there were deaths. PG&E is responsible for at least one person dying uh, due to that blackout. Uh, and so this is it's not a joke. It's it, it's awful. But anyways, that's that's for the fe- that's the middle section of the show. And, We're talking about uh, elections first. Yes, and we'll also talk about the twenty firms thing, the top uh, top biggest uh, company uh, corporate polluters. Yes, and uh, Saren will interview a man from the CBC doing a documentary about fear in the final segment. So stick around for that. Do we have Lauren Latour on the line? You do. So exciting. Good morning. Good morning. On this warm October day. Well, maybe it's cold in Ottawa. Oh, is it cold in Ottawa? Um, this is so bad. I haven't left my bedroom yet, so I have truly no idea. Oh, right. true. Well, so we'll say it is. We'll say it's a balmy day in Ottawa. We'll I felt, I felt warm. Lie about Ottawa. A lot of people were wearing their coats outside. I was warm. Yeah. All right. So, Dave, let's. So, what happened on Monday, Dave? In case for some reason people have made it to Friday and don't know. Yes, on Monday. Uh, Justin Trudeau, Mr. Justin Trudeau, uh, was re-elected to continue uh, serving as Prime Minister after winning a minority government on uh, that past Monday that Stefan just alluded to. They lost around uh, 30 seats, as well as the popular vote, but clung to power, and will have to work with one of the other four parties to get anything passed. As Stefan's favorite Andrew Coyne put it for the National Post, quote, Never before have both major parties taken such a small share of the vote. Never before in my memory have both declined steadily and together throughout a campaign. Their platforms landed with the same dull thuds. Their leaders failed to impress in roughly equal measure. The liberals then did not so much win this election as lose it less. The liberals did not win a single seat from Winnipeg to Vancouver, while the Conservatives hold all of Saskatchewan and Alberta, with the exception of a single NDP seat in Edmonton. The Liberals held on to most of the East Coast after having taken all of it in 2015, and the Bloc Québécois took most of Quebec. In all, the Liberals ended up with 157 seats, the Liberals with 121, the Bloc with 32, the NDP with 24, and the Greens with 3. The Liberals got the smallest percentage of the popular vote for any government since 1965. The Conservatives won the popular vote with 34.4%, which is 1.4% higher than the Liberals, and yet they ended up with 36 fewer seats. The Bloc only had 7.7% of the vote, less than half of the NDP percentage, but the NDP ended up with 8 fewer seats than the Bloc. The NDP lost 14 seats in the elections, but didn't do as poorly as people thought they might at the outset the anti-immigrant People's Party failed to take any seats. 
Trudeau will therefore be facing, on the one hand, a huge group of separatists in Quebec, uh, and on the other hand, a whole bunch of conservatives from Alberta and Saskatchewan who are talking more and more like separatists themselves and eagerly waiting to topple the government and snatch it up as Trudeau tumbles down a long staircase into his early retirement, with Andrew Scheer stating that they will be ready when his government falls. Still, the Liberals will have a lot of options uh, in terms of who they want to work with to get certain bills passed, since any of the next top three parties could give them enough votes. Yeah, so um, obviously I, I have some thoughts, but Lauren, I want to go to you first. What does, uh, what does, this, what does this election outcome look like to you? Yeah, um, I feel like there's so many different sort of aspects to this conversation we could all talk about and scream about. Um, obviously, yes, uh, anything but a conservative government is like it's 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 good. We don't have Andrew Scheer in power, but I I immediately like skipping ahead from Monday to Wednesday when Trudeau had that press conference talking about what he was going to do, sort of first day back in the house and and the first and like you you Google Trudeau and you Google Wednesday or whatever. And and the headline is Trudeau commits to Trans Mountain Pipeline and cutting taxes. Yeah, and 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 like um, there are going to be a whole lot of people in the middle class who are really happy with that tax cut. And I understand taxes are high; people struggle to pay them. But we also know, just like sort of by by logic, if you cut taxes, that means that that services have to be cut as well. And it's not like he followed it with like we're cutting taxes to the middle class and raising them for the highest tax bracket and we're starting another tax bracket for the mega rich. Like that's, that's not how the conversation went. He, he didn't reduce taxes on the middle class and raise them for the mega rich. He just reduced them for the middle class. And then he also comes out and confirms once again, that the trans mountain pipeline is going to happen. And this is just one of those things that like for every person who over the last couple of years and in, and in, and in the couple of days after the election, I had multiple people say this to me. They're like, you know, I really don't think the liberals are going to go ahead with TMX. I think that was just like they bought it so they could think it. And now that they have a second term, they're, 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 they're going to cancel it. And it's like, well, clearly not. Clearly, Trudeau is still vying for that Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba vote that like he's, he's not going to get. I, I don't understand why he keeps ingratiating himself to these people who do not like him and will not support him, even when he does things like buy a ridiculous pipeline to, to I don't know, try to please them. Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah, I'm so frustrated by these first announcements when when this is so clearly the the election that was about climate change and when that was the issue that was at the forefront of everyone's mind that so many people voted for and and for him to come out in this first press conference and 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 apparently not mention it it, it really really frustrates me and tells me that the next four years if this minority government makes it four years yeah. is going to be exactly like the previous four or, or, or yeah the. I, I had man, I have the very, very similar feelings about that press conference. It was such a, you know, a, a, a letting in the air out of probably any type of hope that that we might get a might get a government that would be, you know, like it just speaks to me how important getting uh, civil uh, civil action in in the civil society disobedience is going to be is going to be, be in the next you know, few years. Like the fact that it seems pretty clear that Trudeau saw this election and it was like, Oh, the, the response, the problem I had was that I did what he's trying to defend himself from the conservative right rather than, uh, any sort of idea that a left-wing party has a ch- has a shot. Like, if anything, it feels like the ler- the lesson the liberals got from this was: be scared of the conservatives, but you will get continued support for other things. 
it, it, to come out that first day, especially after what something like sixty five percent of people voted for people voted voted for someone to do more on climate, um, if not, and and that your first press conference is to cut taxes. Are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. Like it is. It, like what a chance you had to be like to come out and be like we are all in this together we are all going to work towards a, a climate change solution i look forward to finding a way to do with it to, to, to do this and and then to be and then to come out and basically say honestly what sheer would have said like yeah. like what else the only the only thing that's different is that is that sheer would not have had the audacity to at the end of a press conference talking about building a pipeline through indigenous lands that you do have no control over also say that you're going to respect indigenous sovereignty like the, the only difference here is that trudeau is is just lying through his teeth at the end of the press conference whereas sheer probably would have cut it off after the pipeline uh Sarah wants to jump in though yeah sorry just really quickly i didn't have a large comment but it was just you know people have gotten mad at me for years you know doing the show where i've sent uh, you know glibly and somewhat you know simplistically as a joke but you know said that effectively the only real difference between the liberals and the conservatives is the branding about whether or not they hate gays and immigrants um but if you look at this stuff i mean i challenge you to to show me a meaningful difference frankly well arguably those are the two places where he actually is different than sheer though like you know like no no but i mean but i mean is that all these voters who are voting for them think they're voting for something different than the conservatives that just don't hate gay people they oh, think they're voting okay. for a left party but right. they're not. They're right. just conservatives that don't that brand themselves as not hating gays and immigrants. That's right. it. Right. The um uh yeah, so this so, so so like there's there's there was there's I still have some uh some hope on on this government and so I won't I don't think I I want to only hit the the fact that 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 first press conference was terrible. Um uh but Lauren, I want to go back to you from the from the side of sort of people working on on activism and other pieces of people like that. Uh sort of where where are you getting what are you seeing from sort of the people that sort of, you know, I would say, like I said this on the on the election show that we covered here, um, about the fact that uh, the it felt like civil society ran the best campaign, you know, like every uh, every campaign seemed to feel gain traction except for civil society. The biggest the biggest rallies during the campaign were, were rallies organized by uh, by young people. And, uh, you know, a million people came out to the streets like I, I'm curious from your perspective on the on the activism side, sort of how how are how are activists feeling? Yeah, I, I think I think people are at least like the leftist activists that, that I, I tend to see. Again, it's like I, I you situations like this reinforce the fact that we all live in social media bubbles that are that are quite biased in in favor of like they reflect our our, our own thoughts mm-hmm. but no people people are people aren't happy people worked really really hard um to make sure uh federal leadership knew that climate was something we needed them to come out and work really hard on right out of the gate and and collaborate on you know what i mean it's like trudeau has a minority government he can't pass anything unless he has support from the NDP and the Greens or like the block. You know what I mean? And and this is one of those things where with this press conference, he came out and he didn't appeal to the NDP and the Greens or even really the block. He came out and appealed to conservatives. I don't know in an effort to signal to them that like, hey, we can be buddies. Hey, we can work together. Hey, we want the same thing. Like it's it's the weirdest strategy. So people are, people are really, really peeved. Um, and frankly, like are showing no signs of slowing down in their activism and organizing and, and rallying in the streets. I mean, there's, there's another youth climate strike being organized for the end of November. Um, I, I believe so, that people uh, are hitting the streets today in Vancouver, actually. 
Yeah, no, yes, right. Greta's in, in Vancouver today. So it's like, and, and, and frankly, the reason that one NDP person was elected in Edmonton Strathcona was because of local organizers supporting them. So, I mean, I, I it, it baffles me that he has turned on sort of like the citizenry and on civil society again, right out of the gate when like, these people aren't going anywhere. They're not going to make your job any easier if you continue to pull stunts like this over the next, I don't know, 18 months that you're going to be in office again. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm curious to see how this, you know, how what the actual campaign or what, what, what he actually starts implementing um, in that, you know, the this should be an opportunity. And this is sort of, you know, this is sort of the, the, the thought of this should be an opportunity for um, for real climate policy to get put forward right we have a we have a we have a place in which the the one place that you know that 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 65 percent of the of uh, in a more higher percentage of the actual seats uh, agree on is is on 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 improved climate policy the liberals ran on improved climate policy the, the every other party that is that, that would prop them up except the conservatives also ran on that like i'm kind of curious like because if, if trudeau comes out and then and then gets the first set of bills passed entirely via working with the conservatives uh you know how do you go back to the electorate and pretend that you're not you you are you're doing anything else right like how do you how do you find yourself um in a in a scenario in which in which that is the the pitch you're making is that look we're not the conservatives but we worked with exclusively the conservatives to get these you know to do these things it's not it's not a thing like the but yeah but but I, like I do under I'm, I am curious actually about this sort of ability yeah, like I, I had a similar few conversations with people who ran you know some serious campaigns like they they were there are some there are some serious climate hawks who did win and there are some good news stories here and you know even the, I believe the there's a the liberals liberals actually elected someone who ran against the pipeline which is like I think kind of incredible um and and yet you yeah we we're going to be buried under a sea of boxes but yeah well no he's like he's a big news he he was he, he ran in i believe he was in montreal there's he like, it was this very is very interesting that's that's that'll be interesting writing generally speaking or, or interesting move generally speaking but like i do think that there's a moment here um to to still push forward i do think that despite his first sort of iterations i i'm curious to see both the block and the ndp both uh, in their speeches made it clear that they're you know, not itching for another election right away, which which Sheer sort of tried to tried to imply could be happening anytime at around the corner. But the, but the other the other parties sort of seemed pretty clearly like let's govern for a bit and actually get some work done. Um, and and what and, and I'm curious where they overlap. You know, like if the, if like maybe that's maybe Trudeau is trying to strong arm them by coming out and, and with the most conservative policies he wants to put forward and hoping that they will trade some of those things for 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 improved. Uh, action on things like climate change, but that's not that's not what a climate champion does. Not what a climate leader does. That's for sure. Like, um, but yeah, the, the the thing that really drives me crazy is just that, like that. He keeps telling you, Trudeau keeps telling us over and over and over again. I want pipelines. I'm. I would rather make deals with the conservatives because largely we. You know, we swim in the same circles. That's why I keep emphasizing the, the social differences, because they agree on pretty much everything else. And the reason that's so alarming is because, and what I was trying to point out the distinction with my comment a minute ago, is that voters don't understand this. If you look at uh, uh, the front page of the Washington Post or any of the more mainstream media uh, this week, it's all saying, uh, you know, a, a, a big turn has been turned. Uh, you know, you can you can succeed on climate policy, but climate policy is garbage. And we know that because the conservatives didn't really even bother 
bother attacking him over it. I mean, they, they were they, what I mean by that was that they were trying to just do the old taxes are bad thing, not climate change is a hoax thing. But that's not some sort of victory. They ultimately want the same things. It's just branding. I'm really concerned that this is a good cop, bad cop situation where they ultimately serve the same people and want the same things. Largely, some of them hate gays and some of them don't. But Canadians don't understand that. And so we're going to we're going to get two parties that pretend to be opposites. And we think, oh, we won because we supported one of them when really they're just serving. They're just serving the same ends. Yeah, I feel like I'm really intrigued by what the. um what the what the what the what the first what the first budget will look like? I guess we'll not we'll know in a couple of months, um, and and because like you know you can't pat, like the budget. It'd be interesting also also to know you know this has been historically the last say ten. 15 years, we've moved towards a um, omnibus, bu- om- omnibus budget bill, which basically is like these budget bills that are just these huge, huge uh, bills that change like 18 different things. And just like, you know, they, I believe there was one during the Harper era where where there was like, it was something all the way down to like, you know, there was a changes to the actual Environmental Protection Act within the budget for somehow, just to make it sort of, to, to sort of hide a lot of that information. And... And I'm and I'm curious because of the fact that we're now going to look at a bill. We're now going to look at a party where you're going to have to get one person to actually agree. You're going to have to get one organization uh, to actually uh, to actually work along with this with this move or one party, sorry, to pass this bill. I expect actually this might be the first time you might see a much smaller uh, budget. You might actually see a, a budget that has uh, that has decreased in, in in size because to get the different bills passed, you would actually need maybe different support. You know, and, and so be like like for for all the the hemming and the liberals made when the when the Harper government ran uh, these gigantic budget bills, they did not really do any different um, when they when they got passed, uh, and so and so there is this level of um, there's this level of question I, I do have about what what we're gonna see, uh, and and also depends on, on like there's a there's a cynicism here of how much do the liberals want to govern now or how much do they want to sort of punt until. Uh, until they think they can actually go back to another election, which they can, they can, they can win a majority again, and then go back to their sort of feeling like their default, uh, default winners, basically. And I just want to apologize uh, on behalf of myself for Lauren uh, that we seem to have lost her. All right, uh, the call's been dropped. I okay. apologize. I haven't been able to get her back, but uh, okay. she sends her best. All right, thank you, Lauren. <laughs> um, uh, and so yeah, so so like anyways, so I was going to go back to to Lauren for last thoughts, but I think the but the. The outline here, if there's a call to action for people, is that there is good news in that in this bit in this that action on climate change clearly remains something that that voters want, um, and and the and the fact that sort of uh, Ontario was was sort of this specific uh, example of 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 austerity was so unpopular from Doug Ford that Ontario remained sort of the stalwart defender of uh, of, of against against sort of the, the the what conservatives had hoped was a tie to conservatism and then you know in Quebec clearly rejected uh, rejected that as well and so the the populace clearly wants wants climate action and the lack of uh, a of, of conservative climate plan I think did hurt them so I'll be interested to see if the conservatives realize that and actually run on an a- with maybe an actual climate policy next time. Who knows? Um, but but the but ultimately the there we do have a government that can be swayed. We do have a government that will have to listen to to the to, to people because they need another party to actually be a part of this. And so if ever there was a time to pressure our government, uh, I would say it is now. Uh, I would say it is in the next. I'm gonna most apparently on average. Uh, 
minority governments last about two years. So I'm going to so in the next two years, which is a convenient timeline for us, those those of us who understand that we have about ten total. So getting real action started right now is 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 it would be huge. Um, so like if we're going to see true real action, um, which is across the board, like it's, it's like it's one of these things in which like. And I'll get to that later. I was going to say, I was going to go back into this idea that, like, I don't think anyone's taking climate change seriously until they actually work on providing buses for rural, uh, for people in, in rural Saskatchewan and Alberta, um, in Western Canada after the, after Greyhound shut down. Because, like, that kind of action is the kind of thing that is, is doable and yet, yet not entirely or usually not really, really thought about as part of climate action. And we're going to need everything. But the takeaway I have is that now is our time. Um, we, we literally do have, uh, a, you know, maybe a two year window to, to keep, uh, the government accountable for what they said they care about, uh, and what they will do. And that includes a, you know, the price on carbon is saved for at least now we need a better one. We need a much wider set of actions that can be doing things. Uh, and so let's, let's, let's keep the pressure up and let's push this because that's our, it's our best bet. Uh, but we're going to come back with, um, uh, with environmental justice and a conversation about the 20 firms that are most responsible for climate change. Uh, thank you, Lauren, for, for joining us. And we'll, we'll, we'll come back next week and find out more thoughts on that. But right now, let's go to a music break. Dans la lune, sous la brume, jusqu'au bout de ma plume Je te garde avec moi And welcome back to the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM, the sound of your city, or on Appreciated Radio Syndicate Partner, or on the Green Majority podcast at greenmajority.ca. Saren's off the mic. He can't tell me what that was excellent song we just listened to. But uh, uh, That was actually uh, French. Uh, that was uh, Ariane Moffat, uh, and I'm not going to read the name of the song Québécois? because Québécois? I have enough respect for the French language. <laughs> I'm assuming Québécois. Yeah. Okay. Well, that was good. I was I was corrected actually on on Monday that uh, the separatists call themselves nationalists now. So mm, Quebec nationalists. Quebec nationalists. Yeah. Nationalist is a great word. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to look at an article right now that uh, Nina Lacani has put together for um, the Guardian on environmental justice, asking various activists to speak on the importance of environmental justice, and I'll quote a few of them here. Dr. Robert Bullard, known as the father of environmental justice, said, quote, Between the 1930s and 1978, 82% of all the waste in Houston was dumped in black neighborhoods, even though only 25% of the population was black. This was not random or isolated. It was targeted and widespread across the southern states and the nation. And Candy Mossett-White of the Mandan, Hidatsa, and Arakara Nation in North Dakota also made a statement for the article, which I will quote in full, because it uh, quite aptly pertains to Canadian issues as well. She said, quote, We cannot talk about environmental injustice without understanding the historical context of colonialization and capitalism. The federal government has put us on reservations on land they believe to be worthless, but many turned out to be rich in resources. This means we're in the way of profits. In most cases, we don't want these mega-projects coming in and destroying our land and water, but it happens anyway. The situation is even worse for our brothers and sisters in the Global South, where, where people are silenced, disappeared, and killed to make money with no hope of justice. I grew up in a community full of environmental injustices without knowing it. So many people I knew, young and old, men and women, got cancer, 
including me during my second year in college. I thought this was normal. Our territory is contaminated by the coal industry, uranium mining, overfertilization, and oil. But environmental injustice is a tangled web. It's about so much more than pollution. Whenever there's a new mega project, the area is overwhelmed by men. There's an influx of money and a rise in organized crime. After the oil boom in 2007, the number of missing and murdered indigenous women increased, and so did drugs. Gangs came and recruited our young people to sell drugs, and many of these young men are now in jail or dead. And Leanne Walters of Flint, Michigan, was also interviewed for the article, stating, quote, I want everyone to know that as of today, the EPA has still not kept its promises to fix the laws and still allows states to cheat on water testing. I was an ordinary citizen compelled to take action after watching my children break out in rashes, scream in agony from taking a bath, unexplained illnesses, losing their hair and being told the problem was specific to my house, even though the same things were happening to children all over Flint. I made the decision to teach myself about how water is treated, about federal laws, and about how to properly test water, because listening to governmental officials uh, lie to my face disgusted me. Yeah, and this is, you know, this is everywhere, right? This is, this is the reason why a, a simple, you know, price on carbon in, is not enough to handle the, the task. $30 a ton. Yeah, you know, like, and, and that's not even saying, you know, th- like the present carbon is not enough to handle the task. It's even in dealing with climate change, let alone trying to dismantle some of these uh, these more systemic pieces. Which is part, actually, to go back to the last segment we're talking to Lauren. One of the things that is so depressing about about uh, Trudeau's coming out and saying that the first thing he wants to do is is to is to reduce uh, is through taxes is because what that says to me is that. I see a government that is actually taking that less of a role um, in in solving in, in in solving some of these problems. You know, you cannot because the, the carbon tax for all of the amount of people who you know who will complain about it is is a relatively you know the money goes right back to people. There's the, the government itself is making no money off this carbon tax. It's actually not. It's not how that t- tax is set up. The tax is set up to basically ref- send money back to back to people, and so. <clears throat> And so there's no extra money going into the government coffers to handle with handle some of these 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 larger systemic problems, you know. And, and so when the question comes, where is the money to ha- you know to, to to clean up Grassy Narrows mercury poisoning, um, you know, or where is the money to to protect and 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 help the you know the people of uh, Chemical Valley, you know, or or where is the money to uh, to stop boil water advisories across uh, across indigenous uh, land uh, throughout the nation? That this is. The, the idea that you're reducing middle middle you know taxes is saying we do not see a place for us to be you know we will continue asking this question because that's where the money is the money is in taking it back right and like to go back to uh, a thing uh, one of the most interesting uh, conversations I've had in a while around what the Harper government's intention was when they got into got into politics which was basically to to limit the power of of, of government to take action. Uh, one of the th- they sort of the president sort of outlined a three pillared approach, you know, to to reduce the amount of uh, amount of actual knowledge the government had, so mm-hmm. cutting science, uh, to and, and the census. That's sort of where the census comes in, to um, to to reduce the, its its oversight capacity, its lawmaking ability, which is what what happened to the environmental protection, uh, all the environmental protection rules like that. And the third one was was how much money the government actually had, and that's the GST cut. 
And so when you look at these three, they've effect, the, the, the Trudeau government has has done some work towards re, towards bringing back science, and obviously did, did not cut the lawn form census, brought that, saved that. Um, has done some work in rehabilitating our our environmental protection laws, but refuses to handle the fact that we are underfunded. And so therefore cannot handle these problems. And then that's what happens is then you end up in scenarios where you are allowing the corporations to have too much control over things, which is the exact example to, to California. So I want to throw you briefly to California so then I can come back to this point. But like, but the problem is once the, as, if the government is refusing to, to, to address these systemic issues because, and be, on the basis of they don't have enough money, the, the question is, okay, well then what are you doing to get that money? How are you going to address these problems? Because it's clear capitalism is not going to solve this. You know, the capitalism is what we got is what got us here in the first place because it was much cheaper to externalize the, these 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 costs of of waste cleanup or whatever to these nations. Yeah, the Jugmeet Singh was asked during the campaign that just ended, um, the leader of the NDP, by some reporter, "Where how are you going to pay for your plan to make sure that uh, all Indigenous communities across Canada have clean drinking water?" He's like, "That's uh, not a question you would ever be asking if." Ottawa didn't have clean drinking water. Right, exactly. So, so stop talking to me kind of thing. Yeah. The, the response to that is, why do you draw a distinction between their drinking water and anyone else's? That's mm -hmm. the response to that mm -hmm. question. Yeah. So uh, so California, yes, we briefly mentioned, uh, we mentioned a few weeks ago how PG&E, the Californian utility that went bankrupt after being held responsible for one of the massive wildfires last year due to a faulty power line, uh, cut power to hundreds of thousands of people for fear of dry winds sparking fires. Now they're doing it again, cutting power to over half a million people to try to prevent more fires. And two other utilities are doing the same, with San Diego Gas and Electric and Southern California Edison planning to cut power to over 300,000 people. After, as Democracy Now! says, quote, a fire in the western Los Angeles neighborhood of Pacific Palisades damaged multi-million dollar hillside homes. I quote that because the way they put it appears uh, to imply that uh, one of the reasons for taking the precautionary measures was because rich people's homes had been damaged in a fire. Right. I don't know, but that's the implication. Right. And uh, so here is the way this connects uh, in, my, in, my, in my view is that when you look at this type of decision, which is you know the, the fact that we have allowed these util private utilities – um, to to expand their their control to a point where they literally can shut off your power and there's nothing you can do about it. That is that is where we're at in this in this in this scenario. Even the governor is mad at the utilities, but that's as far as it's gone. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no recourse for the people who are living in these areas, uh, and and it's because of I know and, and the, the necessary the reason why we have to do this is directly related to climate change. You know the 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 fact that we're increased fire uh, damage and increased problems that it comes directly from climate change, and uh, or at least very very influenced by you know directly is a, is always a hard word. The increased whatever. risks, the yeah, dryness, yeah. the hotness. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it, the the worst fires have been happening. You know, we get once a year, once did, a, every did steroids fires. cause any specific home run by Babe Ruth? Exactly. Yeah. Although Babe Ruth definitely didn't do steroids, he was a drunk. Um, but stop uh, ruining my baseball. <laughs> I appreciated the going for baseball. I like that part. You know, it's just you know yeah, Barry yeah. Bonds took steroids. Babe Ruth was they didn't have steroids. You had those performance hindering substances. Yes, exactly. Um, but uh, but the but the thing here is that you know it's not it, this is an inconvenience for people who have money who can leave the area. 
um, or people who are not living paycheck to paycheck. Uh, it is a devastation for people who can't work uh, tomorrow because the where their work doesn't have power. And they need that, need that money, because like they're not like the 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 company that's employing you is not paying you if you can't go to work, and so like the, the this decision is is not only it's 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 it cascades down right. There are so many people in these areas living paycheck to paycheck. It's not just the people who require power to live, which is a thing, and legitimately led uh, led to at least one death. Um, can we just really quickly daydream about that? Because I think you just identified something really important here, and I'm, we can come back to this another time. But just really quickly, um, imagine if they did have to pay them, right? It, it just and and allow that thought experiment to filter through the rest of the system. Companies now have an, a financial incentive to make sure you're happy, comfortable, taken care of, relaxed. You're in good health, good mental health, having good sex life, whatever. Um, it takes all the benefits of society and puts your happiness at the forefront of a, of a company's concern because they're going to pay it either way. Well, with this is that, you know, like I would say that there's probably, you know, people here who have are actually on contracts who are not working freelance or, 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 you know, or hourly wage jobs will have to get paid. And that's, then that, that's a question. But it's like, but the fact that we're in such a precarious employment scenario is again, it's part of this trap. You get, you, you start seeing these things like how, you know, it, it, it puts the lie to the concept that you can like bootstrap your way out of this. Right. It's, it, it's the idea that, oh, you just need, you just need to work hard. It's like, well, I'm trying to work hard, but the utility has shut off the power to the place I work. And so no one is paying me. And now I can't eat. Well, you seem to be implying that they're doing it merely to protect themselves from lawsuits, from being held responsible for sparking the fires. I, I, that's certain. I, they've certainly allowed their uh, their equipment uh, and, and, their, and their sort of work around their, their like, they could invest a fair amount of money to actually ensure that this type of, that, that mm. the sparks would not occur to create fire. Like you could, you could work pretty hard, it would take a fair amount of money to climate proof or fireproof the, the, these areas. Um, and, and they have not done that. They've allowed their, they've, they've allowed their infrastructure to, to rot. Like really most of, uh, most of the Western world has allowed the infrastructure really to, to begin to fall apart, which is partially why there's a huge need for massive improvement infrastructure for doing any work. But anyways, like they've, they've allowed themselves to get to the scenario where this is their only option. And you know who, who owns these? Is the California own these utilities? No, these are these are they're publicly traded. I, I believe so. Wow. You know, they're not like this is like this is not like a you know, it's not you know, even even here in Ontario, you have, uh, you know, the Ontario Hydro One is only partially owned by by the by the people. Right. The rest mm. is still owned by by spine by private companies. Um, but anyways, so we're running out of time. I do want to at least mention this, the, the, these 20 countries, like 20 companies that are really trying to get us. Yeah. So you may have heard of uh, a study that came out about the top 20 fossil fuel companies um, in terms of their emissions. And uh, we'll just mention that briefly here. The uh, Matthew Taylor and Jonathan, Jonathan Watts published an article on it recently, revealing that a third of all greenhouse global greenhouse gas emissions can be traced to just 20 fossil fuel companies. But specifically what they say is that the companies have contributed to 35% of all energy-related carbon dioxide and methane worldwide since 1965. So it's not quite as straightforward as it originally appears, but it can be useful in terms of targeting specific leverage points. The top seven companies are Saudi, American, Russian, Iranian, and British or British Dutch. 
The article states, quote, The study shows that many of the worst offenders are investor-owned companies that are household names around the world and spend billions of pounds on lobbying governments and portraying themselves as environmentally responsible. A study earlier this year found that the largest five stock market-listed oil and gas companies spend nearly $200 million each year lobbying to delay, control, or block policies to tackle climate change. They also quote the analyst Richard Heed at the Climate Accountability Institute, who put together this data, said, saying, quote, even though global consumers from individuals to corporations are the ultimate emitters of carbon dioxide, the Climate Accountability Institute focuses its work on the fossil fuel companies that, in our view, have their collective hand on the throttle and the tiller, determining the rate of carbon emissions and the shift to non-carbon fuels. Yeah. And so I think this is the, the, the one thing I want to pull out of this is a that whenever you're trying to track emissions is complicated and difficult. Um, and so these, you know, these oil companies can only, you know, you always have to hedge and hem how you're talking about them. But, uh, but also the same thing that, that whenever anyone tries to claim that the, a particular industry is the most polluting in the world, basically, you're going to get like, you get almost there's like five or six industries that whenever they talk, whenever they talk about themselves, they always are like, did you know, fashion is the most polluting industry in the world? Did you know food is the most polluting industry in the world? Did you know? And it's like ways to try to amp up the fact that these are important industries to pay attention to, which they are a hundred percent. But all of that still sits on because of how much fossil fuels they burn to do this. There's there's always one step back, which is how many fossil fuels are we expending to do this thing? And so when you look at the places that have made the most money on the on to to 100 percent do the most harm, it is fossil fuel companies. And I think to 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 give them off the hook on that in any way, shape or form is a mistake. Um, And so, you know, if we're going to take on this challenge, a part of this will be ensuring that people who made money off this are also the ones paying, which is why tax cuts are not the answer. I will end with that. We're going to go to a music break. We're going to come back uh, talking about fear, uh, which, uh, which yes, it's uh, Robert uh, Roberto Verdecchia is here in the studio. It's the science of fear. And we're going to be right back. Right. We are back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners, as well as our podcast listeners, both here uh, terrestrially and extra terrestrially. Uh, I'm in studio now to talk about, uh, it's been, we've had two in a short amount of time, which is always really fun. Listeners of the show will know that my, one of my favorite things to do is interview documentary filmmakers because of their unique perspective on a variety of issues. So today it is my pleasure to talk about the film, Be Afraid, The Science of Fear, which is written and directed by Roberto Verdecchia, who is in studio with us now. Did I get your last name close? You got it. That's it. Awesome. (laughs) I'll try not to say it again so I don't, I'll leave an high note. Uh, and then uh, we also had uh, produced uh, by uh, Rita, uh, Rita Corzia, who's not here to correct my uh, mispronunciation last name. It's uh, 90th Parallel Productions, We've uh, and it's going to be aired on CBC uh, as well, uh, the Doc Channel. Um, I have uh, had the pleasure of being able to watch it uh, ahead of time, um, and I have all sorts of detailed questions about the specifics, but Roberto, I did ask you to come a few minutes early to hear the show that you were coming into, because as we discussed, uh, we normally talk about a lot of news on this show. It's ex- exclusively environment news, almost by definition 
definition, it is anxiety driving. Now, there is a distinction between anxiety and fear, but perhaps uh, for the listeners who have just, as you did, spent the last few minutes listening to some really heavy subjects, perhaps you would uh, help us with that transition by just explaining uh, fear and anxiety and and all these feelings we might be feeling right now as we move into the documentary itself. Yeah, uh, sure. The I mean, what I understand from having done the film is that fear is um, sort of about a specific stimulus, right, that you're facing. Um, so you're afraid of something very particular, whereas when you're anxious, when you have anxiety, it's about a more generalized kind of thing. So it's a kind of generalized fear, you can say, is what anxiety is, which is perfect for when you're talking about environmental things. Absolutely. <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> and of course, the, the part of that, and, and one of the many aspects of the documentary was the idea um, you know, we're, it's topical in the sense that it's Halloween, and so we're talking about fear. But they, you know, these are these are important things that affect everybody on every day, right? It's sort of a fun time of year to talk about it because of the time uh, time of year. But you know, fear is something, and that was something that immediately really gripped me um, at the beginning. Just even watching the film was it reminded me how much of even my own life and my own decisions is guided by fear. And so we could talk about this at a number of different levels. We could talk about it, uh, how it maybe affects people's political decisions. But let's start with, we'll do that if we have time for it. Um, Let's start with the film specifically itself. So one of the things um, just right off the bat that really grabbed me that I'd like to start with actually was about a little over halfway through, but it was, we're talking about at the youngest age. So we're talking about with the children and we were showing them and there was some very interesting, I'll, I'll ask you to do it, but we were, uh, they were showing images to children and to, to, to learn a little bit about their responses. And we learned some very interesting things. Perhaps you could uh, uh, exp- expand that. Sure. A sure. Yeah. That was part of the film that was looking at um, the question of, are we born with innate fears, right? So are human beings sort of hardwired to fear, for example, snakes, and spiders, which are like the number one animals around the world that people have this disproportionate fear uh, about. So so we have this doctor scientist at uh, Carnegie Mellon who's studying babies. They're five months old. <clears throat> and he was, it's not sort of possible to look at or to measure signs of fear in infants because you don't know if they're, well, often they're smiling, they're farting, they're burping, they're, they're happy, they're, who knows what's going on exactly. But what he does is he shows them these images, these sort of drawings of snakes and spiders, uh, and also flowers and sharks and cars or whatever. And he just watches when their attention is taken by these images. And he's able to show that, in fact, even at five months of age, or at around five months of age, human beings seem to be kind of let's say hardwired, for tracking snakes and spider images more than anything else. Mm. So he says it's not that you're born with an innate fear of snakes and spiders, but that maybe it's a kind of early warning defense system where you learn through evolution, this has happened through evolution, to, to pay attention to these things. And if your mother, who you're with when you're five months old, freaks out and says, ah, there's a spider, stay away, don't pick it up or whatever, you learn very quickly to fear this thing. And that was probably a good thing to do because if you didn't fear snakes and spiders, you know, you might be bitten by them. And in some places, of course, they're poisonous and dangerous and so on. <clears throat> yeah, and there's been there's been some, uh, and it's mentioned in the documentary as well, but there's been some sort of discussion, uh, you know, about is there a gendered response to this at all? And I know that, I know that, <clears throat> It's been very popular to think that there uh, that there was a gendered response. There may or may not be, but it's what what was interesting that was parsed here was that there it, it, there may be gendered responses to specific things for specific purposes. So, for instance, women may be generally more predisposed to be uh, afraid of snakes and spiders for the caregiving, for the for the caring, uh, for the for the protecting of the child aspect, because those things are more threatening to children, not because they're necessarily threatening to themselves. I found that very interesting. Yeah, yeah, we didn't go into that with a lot of detail, and I don't know what the studies are exactly. 
but he he sort of offered up uh, this theory as to why that might be, because there are sort of data that shows that women do respond, have more fear towards snakes and spiders than men do. So why might that be? He sort of hypothesized that was for that for that reason, that if the mother isn't afraid of snakes and spiders and allows the baby to get close, the baby can die, and if the mother gets killed also, uh, the baby will probably die. Whereas if the father dies, yeah, it's no not such deal. a big deal. Right? It's, kind of like, <laughs> it's kind of like the mother takes care of the baby, so the mother better better be extra alert. Well, from a dangers, from right? a spe- from a purely you know just bio- biological you know life sustains point of view, it is more important, yeah. frankly, right? So yeah. yeah, I mean that makes to- that makes total sense. So let, but on the other hand, that was something that 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 sort of push it back the other direction on on what people what people's assumptions on that might be was that we also you also talked about how uh, or one of your guests talked about how um, there appears to be a bias towards women for attending things for voluntary scares so things like uh, haunted houses and whatnot there seems to, it seems to be more there could be I don't know if that was scientifically firm study that was done or it was just her anecdotal yeah, experience she, this is a sociologist who studies haunted houses and it sort of studies why people like to be afraid why, why would you willingly go somewhere where you know you're going to get totally freaked out and why would you pay money to do that well people do that right with movies and haunted houses and things and her stats are that it's the majority of women actually who do that more than men mm-hmm. um, and it's not a huge amount she said sort of 55% to 45% and she sort of said it may be really just because women tend to organize things uh, socially more than mm-hmm. men so maybe men want to go to haunted houses but they don't actually get together and say hey guys <laughs> let's actually go do this just don't Whereas, do the work yeah yeah you know, <laughs> that's what she was saying the women will organize it right? yeah it's kind of like the women say let's go and they go with 10 women and they all go and if a couple guys come with them too and maybe well, that's what accounts for it she wasn't sure it, it really I, I promise you it was not my intention this morning to make this entirely a gendered conversation but it, <laughs> it seems to lend itself to it slightly um, there there was a very interesting case study so there, there's two things I definitely there's a number of things we could talk about. There's two things I definitely didn't want to miss, so let me get to them right now. One of them was the idea that, and and I have to say this really impacted me watching this, um, because you do show people going through the, the treatment. Um, I There is a number of areas where I have a lot of fear, different than the ones that were there, but you know, and there are aspects of my life where I feel very controlled by responses that my body take that I have no control over. And so can we please, because I really, I sat up in my chair quite literally during that segment. Can we talk a little bit about the the therapy option and the fact that we may have a a mass clinical trial option going in to deal with this soon? This is about the pill? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is amazing work. It's, it's, I've filmed a lot of stuff in my career, but this is one of the most astonishing things I I filmed really. So there's people who have deep, deep phobias. Let's say in the film, we have a woman who's a, actually phobic of chickens, right, which is kind of funny. But when you see her engaged with the chicken and totally, I mean, she's totally taken, she's totally afraid she can't even enter the room where the chicken is, you, you know, you feel for her automatically. Mm-hmm. So the, this woman in Amsterdam has discovered, based on actually Canadian research, about how, how memories work. And they began to discover that memories were, at some point when they're brought up in the mind, they become unstable. And they're subject to this resaving process, reconsolidation, they're called. And that's dependent on a chemical protein synthesis thing that happens. That's why your memories get resaved. They're rather saved back in the same way, right? So you'll see a spider if you're phobic of spiders, and you'll go, ah, my God, I hate spiders. And then that memory will be resaved, and you'll continue to hate spiders. Or, But at some moment, there's a kind of opening where the mm-hmm. memory is unstable. She found that there was this heart medication, it's a chemical, a pill, that happens to block that protein synthesis from happening, happens to block that memory from being resaved. So her therapy is she triggers the, uh, or exposes the person to, to their phobia, to this chicken, for example, or to heights. We have another example in the film about heights. 
when that memory is unstable, when she feels it's probably open now, the person takes a pill, you spend the day, you relax, you go to bed, you wake up the next morning, you come back and you look at the chicken again and your brain has no memory whatsoever of being afraid yeah. of this thing. So cognitively, it's very strange. They remember, I used to be afraid, or I should be afraid, but their body isn't giving them all the signals yeah. of being afraid. So it's very, it was stunning. I mean, we filmed four people with four phobias and they were all cured. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think instinctually people go like if they're only maybe, you know, people might be driving right now. You're sort of half listening, like instinctively the idea of, yeah, yeah. If you expose yourself to things, you'll be like, you know, it could be hot sauce, could be anything, right? Like the general principle sounds kind of like trivial, but it's really astonishing. Like literally like the, the, so for instance, the, the chicken woman, like the, the, the first frame on her face, I got a smile. Like it's, it seems like a silly reaction because I don't have that phobia, but by, by watching the sheer, just panic on her face for such a because you don't cut away from her face right you stay with her and it only takes a moment or two for the viewer to lose that sense of comedy and really just start absorbing her emotion and then all of a sudden i start feeling yeah. like okay i, I now i don't i don't want to watch this anymore almost because i'm getting so uncomfortable <laughs> and then and then like the next day and she just walks in and is like and she seemed like she was still pausing but her pausing was more like she was like waiting for the fear to kick in yeah. like i'm expecting fear where is it i yeah. better give it a second because it's probably coming yeah. And then she walked in, and the, and the next shot, I mean, maybe a few minutes passed, but the next shot, she's hugging the chicken. Yeah, yeah, very quick. It takes two or three minutes, basically. Yeah. But there is this kind of disconnect, because her brain cognitively remembers that she's supposed to be afraid of chicken. So she walks in fully afraid to be afraid of this chicken, but she's not hyperventilating. She, her muscles don't tense up. So it's like that physical response has forgotten to kick in. That's the part that the pill sort of knocks out. Yeah. And there, uh, uh, David, did you want to ask something? Um, I thought that was amazing. Um, I'm just wondering, so the, so the implication, you probably are already said it, but that uh, the, phob the, the phobia is reinforced based on the last time it occurred, such that it's um, just re it's rebuilt every single time one is exposed to it. And so it's not it's not hardwired in certain terms. It's always re being rehardwired. Oh yeah, apparently. I mean, I'm not an expert in memory, but that seems to be how memory works, right? Mm -hmm. So, which makes sense because that's also how you learn. So, let's say you have a fear of spiders, but then you have an encounter with a spider that you realize, oh, it's actually very friendly, or it's nice. I like this spider. You, mm -hmm. you have to update that memory. You have to mm -hmm. go, oh, I'm terrified of most spiders, but not all spiders. So you begin to. So there has to be some mechanism in memory for for re-saving process from happening. Yeah. I, I it, try, even trying to, like, I was, I was going to try and help Roberto explain it for a second, but, I, like, it, honestly, you, you'll, I think if you just watch the documentary, you'll get it, because you, as you watch these, you watch these people, it's sort of hard to explain what is talked about, but you sort of see it. It's like there's a file missing. Like, you can sort of see it on their faces that they're anticipating the admission that they're expecting, but it isn't there. I, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I felt like I could just read what they were feeling off their faces. Yeah, I mean, just the idea that the memory is, is blown open in the instance of the exposure, yeah. and then and then the pill can be inserted. Is the the best way strange. I could try and do it was that like if it's a fear that like and and please correct me this is not necessarily the better explanation but this was how I understood it was that essentially it was like if you have a, a if there's an aversion that has no real good cause it might by accident get saved anyway. And that by it's sort of like a, you have your like your nighttime. I'm thinking as a computer, you have like your nighttime shutdown list. So part of your brain's shutdown procedure is remember, be afraid of spiders. 
but there's no cause for it. It's just in the shutdown procedure. So what this does is it just goes, hey, why don't you rebuild your your shutdown procedure and, and eliminate it and, and only put the things that are, that are supposed to be there. And this pull essentially allows your brain to do that. It, it, it's going off an old copy unless you give it an opportunity to make a new one. That's That was sort of the best way I would explain mm -hmm. it. But is sure. that close? Yeah, yeah. Sure. <laughs> close enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think this is really one of those cases where you'd really just watch the documentary. Um, so uh, this is a great time to remind people when it's going to be coming out. So I did have one more quick question for you, but let's, um, before we're really out of time here, let's remind people. So uh, we're talking about... Um, uh, this is on uh, Be Afraid, The Science of Fear. It's on CBC's The Nature of Things. Uh, it's going to be live on Friday, November the 1st at 9 p.m. And then I imagine on the website uh, after that? Yeah, it streams regularly on, on GEM, which is their uh, yes. app or, or online viewing. It's on available right now. Yeah. yeah, and th this is a, this is one where I really would recommend you actually watch it. I think a lot of part of the information that's going to be communicated during this topic really was coming for me from from really just viewing the things because it, it was as much of talking to the experts as it was just footage of people going through these things and really eye-opening for me. Um, so the last thing that we, we'd be remiss to not mention, I don't want to give too much away because it's kind of hidden at the end, um, but there's almost like a secret spy ending to the documentary <laughs> a little bit. Talk, let, don't, let's not give too much away about the character because I think it's really intriguing for people to go through it from themselves. But the conclusion that we found was that external fear and internal fear may be entirely regulated by different things. The conclusion I think we, we can and should spend a minute talking sure, about. Sure, sure. I'm going to give away whatever I have to give away. Okay, well, yes. But, well, let's <laughs> leave some is, mystery. The, the fact is there's a woman that we uh, that's in the <laughs> film, uh, partially, who who doesn't feel fear. She's one of like three women in the or three people in the whole world. Because who, she's actually missing part of her brain. Who can't feel fear. Her, she has a problem with her amygdala. Yeah. And so we have this doctor who studied her for about 20 years and spent about a decade trying to scare her. Right, in, in all these different ways, showing her the creepiest films that everybody else freaks out about, taking her to haunted houses that everyone else freaks out about. And her, she just flatlines the whole time. She doesn't experience fear. Um, but finally found a way to trigger a fear response in her, and that was through an internal threat, a kind of biological thing with, with breathing carbon or dioxide and, and a respiratory problem. So they, with that, they begin to realize that the amygdala isn't the only center for fear in the brain, which they sort of science had thought basically all fear is rooted in the amygdala and the amygdala is, it, uh, it triggers the fear response and so on. So because of her, because of this weird thing that she has in her brain, they're starting to learn that there's other, there must be other circuitry in, yeah. in the body for fear. And for me, just out of, like out of interest, as a, as you know, neuroscience being one of my casual interests, um, I, I find that incredibly exciting that there's a whole system we haven't explored because I feel like as someone who experiences a lot of anxiety and fear and I take medication for anxiety and that sort of thing, that there is so much that we have misunderstood yeah. about how those systems work yeah. that could be easily solved if we just knew what we were dealing with better. And yeah. so I got very excited watching this up. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, that's what one of the interesting things I think about the film is just that is that this is a primal, fundamental emotion which has been studied for you know I don't know for, since the beginning of people studying other people. There's still huge mysteries about how fear works and what it what it's actually doing. All right, well I, that is all the time we have, but I, I really want to thank you for your time, and I would encourage people to go and check that out. Again, you can do that on uh, uh, on the website after the date, but it will be live on the CBC. Uh, be afraid, the science of fear. CBC's The Nature of Things, Friday, November the first, at 9 p.m. Or you can check out the website. We've been talking to Roberto Verdesia. I'm going to mess it up. <laughs> I guess yeah, I was trying to not say it a second time. Apologies. No problem. Um, 
uh, very pleasure, uh, great pleasure to have you. Uh, another wonderful film from uh, the producing agency, and uh, and I hope people go check that out. Um, we do technically have 14 seconds or so. Um, did you want? <laughs> is it my turn to give you a closing comment? All Stephanie? right. Um, oh, yeah. I'm turned your mic down because you were typing. Because I was typing. That makes sense. Um, yeah. Well. You know, I think it was interesting to, to come off of fear and and in the whole show. I the, to me the answer is 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 to how else, like if we can break down the fear, we've it's been proven we we respond better. So anything we can do to break down fear uh, and, and increase hope uh, guarantees uh, or increases our chances to re- react rationally and positively and make a better world. So yeah, anything we can do to we just got to take the fear. pill and put it in literally everyone's drinking water against their knowledge yeah. and. That's, Unfortunately, yeah, that's not, not how that. the Let's therapy works. <laughs> yeah. What you'll watch the film. That's not how the therapy works. But anyway. All right, folks, have a great week. Thank you so much for your time. And we'll be back to talk to you again next week. Take care. <laughs>